Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, a resident fellow of American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And as our viewers know, we love to highlight black excellence. Individuals that you may not have heard of, but are doing amazing work in their communities or their businesses. And we decided to create a series of podcasts to highlight individuals such as the person we have on our show today, whose name is James Stovall. Hey, James, how are you? Hey, Ian, Naiku, how are you guys? We're so good. We're so good. So James, you know, you are a, a leader, an entrepreneur, a business person. You've just sold your company. Uh, very inspiring. So we're looking forward to chatting with you. And full disclosure, James and I have all known each other for a couple of years. He's done great work within the charter sector, making it possible for tens of thousands of kids to get a better education. So James, thank you on behalf of all the children that you work for. But um, before you hop into your business, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your backstory, uh, what inspired you as you were rising up the ranks? Well, uh, let me first start by saying thank you to both of you brothers for uh, starting this podcast. It's uh, tremendous work that you're doing in highlighting uh, invisible men who actually for many of us are not so invisible. Uh, there are a couple of folks who I know were in the podcast uh, in previous editions. And um, one in particular, I just, you know, all of them humble me, but one in particular, uh, Glenn Laurie. I mean, he's just an incredible human being and uh, someone I've admired for quite a long time. So just to be on the podcast is a, a huge uh, uh, humbling event for me. So thank you for inviting me. Um, so, look, I'm just a, a young kid. I'm, I grew up in a small town in the suburbs of Chicago, um, about 40 miles north of Chicago, uh, a suburb called, of all things, North Chicago. Literally, that's the name of the suburb. <laughs> they weren't too creative when they named it. But uh, it's about 40 miles outside the city. And uh, it's kind of one of those towns that in much of the Midwest, it kind of fell on hard times. So it was a kind of in this rust belt where there's a lot of industrial activity in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then as you got into the 70s and kind of factories started to close down, you started to see the debilitating effect of that on the communities. And, and that was North Chicago. Uh, North Chicago, um, predominantly African-American, predominantly working poor, um, very much like a, I don't know, a, a Yonkers, New York, or um uh, I don't know, like a Ferguson, Missouri or something like that, you know, kind of one of those forgotten, talk about invisible, talk about one of those forgotten places. And uh, so that was kind of the the back uh, store, backstop or the scene in which I grew up in the uh, early 1970s. So, um, you know, my mom, quite frankly, was the protagonist of this story. Uh, so I was the youngest of four children. Uh, my parents divorced early. My mom, high school degree, uh, excuse me, high school uh, education, um, probably 22 with four kids under the age of eight or so. Wow. And um, so her first job was actually driving a school bus. And um, I remember being on the back of that school bus. She couldn't afford to put me into daycare. And I used to ride in, I used to ride in the back of the bus. 
Um, and but my mom, interesting enough, she, you know, obviously there was opportunities to get uh, welfare and, and things like that. She shunned that, didn't want to do that. So she, you know, started out as a bus driver uh, a couple years later, uh, applied for, got a job as a secretary at this uh, up and company, up and coming company called Nationwide Insurance. Uh, eventually didn't start there, stop there. She uh, decided she wanted to become an insurance agent. So she studied, became the first black woman insurance agent in the state of Illinois oh. and had her office, you know, this pre-COVID office in the house. <laughs> um, and so that was my first sort of uh, view of someone really making a way for themselves. Um, so, you know, went to high school. There was a story there. I, you know, she couldn't afford to send me to a Catholic school. The only other option um, that we had was a Catholic school about 20 miles away because, again, our, our school system was pretty uh, terrible back then. Um, but fortunately, through the grace of God, made it through, ended up at Howard University. Uh, best four years of my life. Uh, that's a whole nother podcast. But, <laughs> but uh, after that, worked in advertising, went back to Howard Law um, and uh, worked at a large uh, law firm doing corporate work. Um, and that's quite frankly where I hit kind of uh, a dead end. Um, I was making good money. I took a job, quite frankly, just because it was paying me the most money and which was mistake number one. Um, but um, I kind of hit a, a, a wall, realized that quite frankly, I wasn't a great lawyer. I was okay, but wasn't great. And ultimately wanted to do something different with my life. So I pivoted and went to work for a, uh, a firm that was creating charter schools around the country. And this was literally 1999, early 2000. Um, I was drawn to it because of the educational opportunities that I didn't have. And I knew what it was like only having one school to go to and that school sucked. And I wanted to, you know, provide an opportunity for kids who uh, kind of grew up in the same way that I did. And so I did that for about 10 years, um, eventually started my own firm uh, that created software and provided employee benefits and employee support for charter schools. And I called it Little Bird. Uh, that was 2015. Um, we did quite well. And um, in 2020, so just a couple months ago, uh, we sold the business to a publicly traded firm, one of the largest in the industry. And um, yeah. Uh, well, so, yeah. Done. well done. Well done. Let me ask you something. When, when you witnessed your mom make those moves and you saw her sense of resiliency, what do, what do you think that did for you? Like, how did, how did that shape who you are and the kind of decisions you make? Well, I think this idea of um, agency, I didn't know it. I couldn't call it out then. But just this notion that despite what was happening outside of you and what people may have been thinking about you or, quite frankly, even told you, it doesn't stop you that one door may uh, close on you, one opportunity may be shut down. But what I saw with my mom was this never give up attitude. And, you know, it sounds kind of like hokey, but I, rem I remember distinctly times my mom would come home and she would be disappointed 
because some sale didn't go through or something would happen. She would get back up the next morning and get back at it. And then a couple of days later, she'd come home and she'd be elated because something that happened that was, you know, would land her a new client. And so this idea of, you know, get knocked down once, get back up twice was kind of embedded in me at an early age because of her. I mean, remarkable. That story says more about the pathway to success than anything. I think about you, little James, on the back of that bus. I mean, that's incredible. And, and, and I, I hope our, our listeners and our viewers heard you. you know, your mom didn't want to take that handout. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but that attitude. Yeah. That attitude um, is, is absolutely incredible. You know, so you talked about Howard University, and, you know, I looked at your – the, the president of your company as well, who I think went to a historically black university, which how many, how many examples of that, Ian? A, a CEO and president both happen to be of African ancestry, both attending historically uh, black, black colleges. It, it's, a lo- it's, it's a loaded question because I think I know the answer, but I want to hear your articulation. Is there still a place in America, a need for historically black colleges and universities? Oh, absolutely. Look, you know, for me, you know, again, growing up and, um, you know, having gone to pretty much an all black elementary school, middle school, high school, certainly mm-hmm. Howard and even law school. I, I joke like, you know, between my skin color and all my schools, ain't nobody blacker than me. <laughs> so <laughs> so so I, I fundamentally believe for me in all seriousness that at a time at that time, my world was pretty closed off from what I was able to see. I mean, I saw enough, thank God, that I could reach high enough that I could, you know, aspire to a, to a Howard and eventually get in. But for the most part, there weren't a lot of like sort of, you know, corporate type role models that I saw. And um, Howard was an awesome experience for me because quite frankly, you know, I was able to see the diversity of black people. You know, my best friend, his parents went to college. You know, neither one of mine did. His grandparents uh, went to college. His <laughs> father was best friends with Langston Hughes. And so meeting these people, I'm like, whoa, black people coming. Oh, <laughs> I didn't realize the diversity and the richness of our experience. I mean, you re- to read it is one thing, but to see it up close is another. Um, and certainly the experience that you get there in terms of the, the role models and the people who care about you uh, is, is second to none. So, yeah, I absolutely think there is uh, certainly a place for uh, a Howard or as there is a, a Brandeis, as there is for Smith College, you know, so. Yep. So, so now tell us a little bit about, you know, you were working for a firm, you were working for the man, you're like, nah, it's <laughs> not, really, not really working for me. <laughs> I want to strike out on my own. So just talk about that. Like, how do you, you, you don't just do that, right? Like, uh, did you have mentors? You know, where did, where the capital come from? Mm-hmm. Like, what made you say, I can do this? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, you, uh, you got to kind of put this in context, right? So I started the firm, quite frankly, when I was 45. And so I had a good 25 years of work experience. You know, I, I took a, a dabble, um, maybe right around 2000 when entrepreneurship and it didn't end up, 
didn't end up, you know, horribly, but, you know, I didn't make any money and it was a quick sort of in and out thing. So um, there wasn't a lot of success or any success then. And so I always had this vision that I was going to create a business. I just didn't know how and when. And so as I was getting into my 40s, I was getting a little itchy. And but at the same time, um, I, I knew that I needed to be thoughtful in my approach. And so um, as I started to think about, you know, I become, again, CEO of this organization and I started to think about, OK, what's next for me? Is it just, quote, kind of going as far as I can here or is the, should I sort of take a chance? One of the things that I thought about deeply was, OK, if I'm going to do this, then should I do it in a space where I already know or should I do something different? So in terms of entrepreneurship, there are those who kind of strike out with a great idea, but they don't necessarily know the market and don't know any people were there, but they just have this great idea. And then there are those like me who kind of take the approach of, hey, I see a problem within the industry or within an area that I deeply know something about right? That I have some contacts, that I have a Rolodex, and that I can, you know, sort of make sure that I have whatever degree, you know, downside protection you're going to have. I have a little bit of that because I know people. And for me, not having, you know, capital, I had a little bit of money that I could put towards it, but not a significant amount to, you know, go out and hire a lot of people. I felt like that second choice was probably the best option for me. Um, that, you know, if I were going to be successful, it, it, it's going to be in a place that I had spent 20 years almost of, of my career in. And so fortunately for me, and this came quite frankly, because, again, I had spent so much time. Um, the, the, the guy that I was working for um, was a private equity guy. And so in terms of capital, to your question, Ian, I actually went to him and I said, hey, I have this idea. If you will back me, I'll give you you know, uh, uh, ownership stake as well. So I'll give you some equity, but I'm going to need some capital. But, you know, I'm going to put in the work. I'm going to put in the sweat equity. I'm going to put in a little bit of my money. I'm also, quite frankly, going to take a significant pay cut. So I had a lot of skin in the game. But again, my point of view was I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to give myself the greatest likelihood of success. And I knew it was going about it in a way that was very intentional in a space that I knew deep, you know, I knew, um, I knew a lot about. You know, Chicago, Ian, we're here in Chicago a lot, uh, whether it's the hometown or the place of education. And I, I don't think it's coincidence in these, these black men of excellence. James, I mean, what, what is it about Chicago? I know you were in North Chicago, but it's, yep. It's in the ecosystem. It's, you know, it's, yep. it's sort of like mainland China. And then there's, you know, the rest. Yeah. What, what is it about Chicago? Huh. It's an interesting question. You know, it's funny because I hadn't thought about that in a while. But I will say this. Moving to New York many, many years ago, I kind of saw that, that New York didn't have the groundswell of sort of entrepreneurial, black entrepreneurial activity that I saw in Chicago. I think it's part and parcel of kind of where black folks came from during the great migration. They came, like my dad, came from the South. He was escaping Jim Crow and came from the South. There were certainly factory jobs and whatnot there. But again, much like me, perhaps, you know, 30 years later, folks started to tap out 
right? And so they needed to, for, if for no other reason, kind of create their own. Mm-hmm. Certainly there were a boatload of folks who came up um, from Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, into Chicago with an entrepreneurial bit, right? And so there was this huge community of folks who needed service. It was certainly segregated, still is to some degree. And, you know, look, if you wanted, uh, you know, the news, you had to have a black newspaper. Um, If you wanted milk, you you went to the grocery. And some of them, you know, like John Johnson with Jet Magazine, Ebony made it national. But the reality is, I do think that um, Chicago, maybe Detroit to a lesser degree, was kind of the, the mother of necessity where black folks were segregated and, and they needed a way to, to support and service each other. Self-reliance. Absolutely. Yeah. So you uh, mentioned um, this idea of agency earlier, which obviously, you know, I think is a very powerful concept and we're as a country going through a national reckoning on race mm-hmm. where there is a dominant narrative that you as a black man, you know, you know, or your children have been born with a boot on their neck, right? Um, mm-hmm. Destined to be victims of white supremacy. How do you how do you balance your success and determination? Not not that those forces are non-existent. Mm-hmm. How do you balance your ability to see through those things and a pathway to your own success? Yeah, so I think everybody has to deal with this differently. For some, they internalize that and they are driven by that. They sometimes focus on it and they're able to, on the one hand, focus on it and still kind of go about their way and make their way. But for me, I couldn't deal with that. Um, To your point, look, it exists. Uh, Racism is, is there. But for me... I could not focus and accomplish all that I wanted to out of life by paying attention and focusing on what was wrong or what the opportunities may or those doors that may have been shut on me. I had to focus on the ones that I knew were going to be open to me or could be open to me. Um, You know, so I, I was in a debate recently and this whole idea of, you know, sort of working you know, where your parents say, hey, you got to work harder than the next man, you're black, this and that. To me, when I owned that, it was like a shackle around my neck. It, it was almost as if, um, you know, the frame of references, you know, white folks are these eight foot tall, you know, <laughs> giants. And, you know, it, I, I, I couldn't deal with it. When I, when I really came to this in my, quite frankly, my late 20s, early 30s, I realized that it was a burden that I personally couldn't deal with that. I said, look, okay, it exists. So what? (laughs) I'm still going to get at it and I'm not going to be denied. And that was just the way that I had to focus my mentality around it. Uh, And again, other people can focus on it, deal with it and still get by. I couldn't. And so that's, you know, sort of the way that I've approached it and what's been successful for me. Brilliant. Ian, did you have another one? Well, I, I was just going to ask the question, how do you think we develop that mindset? How do we take what you were able to discover in your late 20s and early 30s? How do you replicate that? I don't have a good answer, but I, here's a take. 
if you think about it, uh, racism in the larger context of um, unfairness, and this isn't an original thought, but uh, uh, bear with me. The idea that there is unfairness in the world, okay? There's unfairness in all different stripes. Um, you could be a 300-pound white woman, and you're going to have a hard way to go. You're, you could be a, a, a white male who just came back from Afghanistan with two less limbs, so you come back, and now you got a hard way to go. You could be an Asian dude with parents who don't speak English and you're trying to import and, and just quote off the boat. It Look, everybody's going to face some unfairness. So as a black male, I'm going to face my burden and it might be because I'm a black male. But in the larger context, if you step back and think about it, and, and that's just dealing with Americans, right? Think about the unfairness if, you know, you were a young woman growing up in Rwanda. I mean, just think of yourself larger than this context of being in Chicago, from the Bronx, wherever you grow up, and put, your, put it in the context of being a human being. And just think about, hey, everybody's going to face some unfairness. Yours comes in this flavor. Okay? It's okay. All right? You can get by. And particularly being in this country... I mean, I don't even have to go down that pathway to tell you such an advantage that is. So for me, I came to that realization. And then later on, as I started to think about it and learn, quite frankly, from others, I said, you know what? I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right that, you know, racism is an unfairness. Sometimes, quite frankly, it can get you killed. And, and that would be, you know, the, the ultimate unfairness. But by and large, the racism that we face, eh, you know. Again, a shut door here and there, but quite frankly, you know, um, you take the crookeds with the straights, right? There are going to be some doors that open up to you Crooked because you're black. All right. So that's how I would deal with it. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate the global perspective on that as well. You know, I often, you're looking for Brazil, for example, there's 90 million people of African ancestry in Brazil and they catching all kinds of heck. I mean, it might as well be 1950 in Brazil, but I don't hear anyone talking about, mm. you know, and, and then you meet someone from Brazil who, who is, you know, fundamentally white. They talk about how colorblind the society is, which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, America puts every other place to shame. I mean, I, I, a month doesn't go by where I see someone, I say only in America, only That's in right. America. It, it is, right. you know, and so certainly we've got, we've got problems, but, with a global perspective, you can't come to but one conclusion that this is a remarkable place. And no doubt, you, know, you mentioned earlier, James, how how impressed and how how honored you are, you know, to think about Glenn Lowry and his accomplishments. But I guarantee you, I don't know Glenn well, but he'd be equally proud of what you've accomplished and where you came from and what you built and what you've done and your attitude. It's exceptional. Uh, but so we we have a. We call it our speed round, James, where, where, where I offer up a couple of um, historic people or philosophies and uh, ask you to pick one and tell us why. Okay. So we'll, we'll start with our, our typical, which is Malcolm or Martin? Hmm, Malcolm or Martin. Well, uh, that's a tough one. 
But I would have to go with um, Martin. Um, well, first of all, my, my daddy's from Georgia, so I got to go with, with the hometown hero. Um, and, and I grew up, my dad is a huge Martin fan and, you know, uh, listened to, you know, back when you used to have tapes and record players, whatever, listening to his speeches with my dad. Uh, but I think even beyond that, like the courage and, and look, they were both courageous men, but I think it's on a different level what what Martin was doing in the South. I mean, I grew I grew I used to go down south in the 70s and my dad grew up in rural South. I mean, I mean, it's I'm talking about backwater and and that was in the 70s. And I couldn't imagine being Martin. <laughs> walking around Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, back in the, show me the tape where uh, Malcolm <laughs> was going down. <laughs> I mean, no disrespect, but that's why I, I would uh, choose Martin all day. Very good. C civil rights or economic development? Ah, that's easy. Uh, yeah. Economic development. <laughs> if we're talking 2020, 2021, um, you know, look, uh, perhaps 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years, ago, you know, certainly 100 years ago. Yeah, you, you'd be dealing with civil rights. But at this day and age, no, economics, uh, it's about getting that paper, it's about getting wealth. Um, and so, yeah, economics. And lastly, uh, you've been both uh, corporate leader or entrepreneur. Ooh, I think there's a place for both in our community, uh, depending on your mindset, your disposition and many other factors. But uh, definitely in terms of building wealth, uh, I would say entrepreneurship um, for, for the great majority of us, that is. All right, James, you are such an inspiration. Well, you know, maybe to close, you know, as our viewers know, you know, Nike and I came up with the idea for the Invisible Men 30 years ago in the aftermath of the Rodney King uh, verdict and this, uh, this dominant narrative that black men were being an endangered species, we were being hunted. And in many ways, that same narrative is with us today in 2021. In that same way we felt invisible back then, we felt, God, how are young people hearing stories about black excellence, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we created this character, Daryl, the 16 year old <laughs> black kid that lives in forgotten USA. And I'd love to hear what you, what advice you'd, uh, you know, you'd provide for Daryl because, you know, he might be being inundated with stories of all the things that he cannot do in his mm -hmm. life. And what do you think? What would you say to Daryl? Hmm. Um, you know, I, I'd say to Daryl the same thing I'd say to my son. I have a 14-year-old, uh, um, and I, I say to him, um, "What it, it's?" Um, I, I have this sort of philosophy. I, I call it the Fro F R O philosophy. Uh, if you're black, it's Afro, okay? But 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 the F is freedom. Um, this this notion of freedom and, and this notion that we are free. Um, and and I, I got this from Shelby Steele. He's, this, this idea that you got to recognize that you are free. And yes, again, there's going to be some unfairness that comes down your pathway. It's going to visit your house. It's going to knock on the door and it's going to get you sometimes. Okay. But you are still free. 
And that notion is liberating, or at least it was for me to know that, yes, there are sometimes these forces intentional and otherwise out there, but this notion that you still have agency and that nothing can hold you back. That's the first thing, realizing that you're free. The second thing that I share with my son and I would share with Daryl is this idea of with freedom comes responsibility. You have to do certain things in life to be successful, right? You have a responsibility to get your education and really focus and do as well as you can, not to BS with it, okay? You have a responsibility when it comes to reaching uh, adulthood to, quite frankly, not get a girl pregnant, okay? If you do, uh, do the right thing, uh, get married, get a job, um, how you talk to people, present yourself. There are certain things that you have to do that are non-negotiable, okay? It's, it's called responsibility, all right? Uh, and then lastly, once you realize that you're free and, you know, you, you don't buy into all these narratives that people try to suck you in and the larger society tries to suck you in to suggest that just because you're a black male, you can't do it. And once you sort of uh, embrace the fact that you have agency and, and it propels you to realize that, hey, I have responsibility, the last thing that will open up are all these opportunities. Um, Daryl, you live in a, an incredible time where you pick up your phone and the world is right there. You can create a business right on your phone. You can connect with you know great minds. You, you pick up Twitter right now, you could be talking to, uh, what's my man from Tesla? I mean, you can reach, <laughs> you can reach in, right? So the notion that you can't get to somebody because of you're poor, you're black, I, there's no excuses. Again, this concept of responsibility and this, this concept of, hey, I, I, I'm an owner here, um, that, that I have freedom, is going to open up all these opportunities for you. And so I, I've seen it in my own life, and certainly the generation coming up, uh, it certainly has many more opportunities that I had than my father and my grandfather parents did. And so uh, I, I would just say that I guess the, the last two things I would end with, and this is, again, just from a personal standpoint, once you get past the, the fro, um, two things I would add to the mix. One being um, this idea of faith. I am a, 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 a person of faith. I, 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 I'm, I fear God. Uh, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. I mean, I, I, and I can proselytize with the best of them. And so I, I just fundamentally believe because life is hard, because there's going to be some, some ups and downs, you can't avoid it. And, you know, black, white, rich or poor, doesn't matter. There's going to be some things that happen in your life and to you that uh, are not going to be pleasant. And so calling on your faith, I think, is something that, um, at least for me, has worked and then the last thing um, I would say is get a get a good spouse, <laughs> uh, get married and stay married. Uh, it served me well. <laughs> uh, you talk about black wealth building. How much black wealth is destroyed by divorce? And I mean, white wealth for that matter, but particularly black wealth. And so 
you know, getting married will give you an opportunity to do what I did, which is take an opportunity at entrepreneurship or take a chance at it because you have a spouse who can sustain you, hopefully. And so that idea of marriage and the bond and, you know, financial is one thing and, you know, spiritual and everything else it does for you in terms of raising kids is such a fundamental thing and staying married and, you know, look, we all go through difficult times. So if you need some help, get some counseling, whatever it is. But this idea of staying married, I think is something that we don't talk enough about. And uh, so I would just, you know, say that to Daryl. All right. Wow. James Fro. I love it. I love it. I love it. We're free. We have responsibility. And when those two intersect, that creates opportunity. I love it. I love it. Well, James Stovall, thank you for being an exceptional example of excellence. And uh, I'm sure our viewers are happy to have heard from you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, James. Can't wait to see what you do next, my brother. Uh, All right. Stay tuned. I'll be watching you guys too, man. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 